Welcome to the Arthroscopy Association's Arthroscopy Journal Podcast. The views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the Arthroscopy Association or the Arthroscopy Journal. Welcome everybody. I'm Dr. Andrew Sheehan from the San Antonio Military Medical Center. Today I'm excited to be talking to Dr. Al Getgood from London, Ontario. Dr. Getgood is an associate professor at the University of Western Ontario and works the Fowler Kennedy Sport Medicine Clinic. His paper entitled, No Difference in Functional Outcomes When Lateral Extraarticular Tenodesis is Added to Anterior Cruciate Ligament Reconstruction in Young Patients, the Stability Study, was just recently made available online as an article in press. Dr. Getgood, welcome to the podcast and thanks for joining me. Thanks very much, Andy, for having me here. So to start things off, what would you say to the casual knee arthroscopist or perhaps the, the shoulder surgeons listening uh, to our talk today that are saying to themselves right now, oh, great, another ACL study. Don't we already know everything we need to about ACL reconstruction? What in your mind are the one or two critical knowledge gaps as they pertain to ACL reconstruction in 2020? Uh, you know, it's a it's a great question, and, and it's 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 not uncommon for that sort of question to come come at us at, at various conferences. You know, it's always you know you guys still talking about the ACL. And I think what's what's really come out probably in the last five years has been the interest in and the first thing would be appreciating that the ACL injury is not an isolated injury. Um, there's been an awful lot more work along the the effect of the meniscus, both medial and lateral, in terms of controlling anterior translation as well as rotation. Uh, the effect of uh, bony geometry, whether that that's uh, lateral femoral condyle uh, architecture, notch, uh, width, but also uh, tibial slope, and then of course this the the, co- the concern uh, regarding the the collateral structures, so the the extra articular structures, and whether that's uh, we've known for a long time postlateral corner has an issue regarding increasing strain on your ACL if you have PLC deficiency, but more this this the issue of the anterolateral complex, the anterolateral ligament IT band stabilizers, as well as more recently the MCL and, and, and sort of anteromedial rotatory laxity. So there's an awful lot more. Just what we're we're thinking along the lines of it's not you know every, not every ACL injury is the same, and certainly the, the sort of the idea the adage of an isolated ACL injury probably doesn't happen. And I think that this, the second thing is then when we start looking at studies is understanding that, that not every patient's the same and maybe that we, we can't just take all comers. We can't just take a uh, all case series of, of patients who have had an ACL injury and then compare one technique versus another because over and over and over we've seen studies have shown there's really very little differences in surgical technique. But when we start breaking down into the younger age group at high risk uh, critical age group of patients going back to uh, contact pivoting sports, the failure rates are that much higher. And that's when we start seeing differences in, in even uh, graph type. And that's where the, the argument of graph type has come back in again. And I think, you know, I think the study that Julian Feller did a number of years ago, um, looking at his failure rates, um, it really should be commended because one of the first papers that came out showed that this really high failure rate, you know, up to 20% in, in patients under the age of 18 which is really quite concerning. So I think that's the real differences that we're seeing in, in, in more contemporary ACL literature. Yeah. And the other thing I, I find myself repeating to the, I guess, to the haters, for lack of better words, when we're talking about ACL studies and, and ongoing research efforts is where else in, in orthopedic surgery would we accept a failure rate of 20% of a surgical intervention? You know what I mean? Like that's, I mean, if we were talking about total hips and total oh. knees or wherever, I mean, 20% failure rate is unacceptable. So I think that that, that 
data point in and of itself should be compelling us to continue to ask the tough questions and take on you know ambitious initiatives such as yours to to try to get better at what we're doing. Yeah, I think I mean I couldn't agree more. I mean with this, we've we have so much room to improve, particularly when we start looking at our high-risk individuals. Yeah. So why don't you give us a broad overview of the stability study in terms of what your overarching research question was and how you and the co-investigators tackled it from a methodological standpoint? Sure. I mean, it, it really stems from from the fact that you know we 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 recognize I mean a lot of people obviously had published a lot of literature showing that there were these high rates of failure in our younger age group so we wanted to look at was there something that we could do to try and improve our rates of failure in that particular age group and really trying to wean out the the, the high risk individuals and this the study sort of the genesis of the study came about around about sort of 2012 13 when there was a lot more talk about the anterolateral ligament the anterolateral capsule we'd been doing some work on um, the biomechanics of, of the ALL on the lateral side. Um, and it was clear that this was, a, this was an area that, that, that really deserves a little bit more analysis. And when we look back at some of the, the historic literature on the use of lateral penodesis in ACL reconstruction, um, it, it was pretty obvious I mean, that, that it had an effect. And we published a systematic review in 2015, which showed that, it, that the addition of a lateral plasty reduced um, rotatory laxity when teamed up with an ACL reconstruction, but there hadn't really been a, a very strong, adequately powered, methodologically rigorous study that could really show a clear, significant, clinically significant as well as statistically significant difference uh, within, uh, you know, within a high-risk patient population. So that was the genesis of study of stability. Sorry, and it, interestingly, you know, I think our, everything sort of it was came about quite nicely in that Essacos at the time. Uh, then had put out a call for um, a uh, an award or for a grant application that was centered on uh, a multi-center, multi-national uh, um, uh, study. So it really, all our ducks lined in a row really quite nicely. So we applied for that grant. And so the, the premise of the study was that we wanted to do a multi-center randomized clinical trial comparing ACL reconstruction with or without lateral penodesis in patients that we deemed as being at high risk of, of re-injury of failure. And um, so this involved nine centers across Canada, and two, so seven, seven in Canada, two centers in Europe. And we, uh, we basically, our inclusion criteria included patients all under the age of 25. Um, and we chose 25 primarily for, for an issue of both high risk, but also feasibility. We knew we were gonna need large numbers. Um, we wanted to try and, and focus on patients again who had higher risk of re-injury with regards to their presenting um, examination. So patients going back to contact pivoting sport, patients who had generalized ligamentous laxity or hyperextension recurvatum, uh, and then patients who had high grade rotatory laxity. And, you, and the patients had to have at least two of those three criteria to be included in the study. So again, we're trying to weed out the, the really high risk group because to, to be able to show a, a meaningful difference, we really need a high event rate to be able to show a difference. And so we randomized patients at the time of surgery to have uh, an ACL reconstruction with a hamstring tendon autographed with or without a lateral tenodesis. And then patients were followed for a period of, of uh, 24 months at your standard intervals 
and our primary outcome of choice was, was what we described as clinical failure. Clinical failure was a composite outcome of both um, rotatory laxity, so persistent rotatory laxity, as well as graft failure. And the reason that we chose that particular composite outcome was that if we were adding an extra procedure onto our standard ACL surgery, although some patients we know may present back at 12 months or 24 months with a grade one pivot shift, but if we've done an extra procedure to reduce the rotatory laxity, then by definition that procedure has failed. So that's why we called it a clinical failure. Um, and then we also looked at secondary outcome measures, which is graft failure, as well as your standard patient reported outcomes like ADC, coups, um, activity score, marks activity score. And then a number of centers did some other uh, functional testing, which is the, the focus of, uh, of the uh, paper in arthroscopy. But um, uh, essentially what we, what we found uh, within, within the study was that the primary outcome, the addition of the lateral thesis, to an ACL reconstruction by 24 months had um, a significant, so both a statistically significant and clinically significant reduction in clinical failure. So that went from uh, essentially 40% uh, down to 25%. And then something maybe it's a bit easier to get your head around, which is the, the, gra the, the graft rupture from 11% down to 4%. So a 66% relative risk reduction in graft rupture. Um, there were really no differences uh, in patient reported outcomes. Um, there, was a, there was a small difference that was not uh, clinically significant at three uh, and six months in Coup's score. Um, that was in favor of the ACL only group. Those, all those changes washed out by 12 or 24 months. Why don't you briefly describe for the listeners exactly what the modified Lemaire lateral extraarticular tenodesis is and why you chose this tenodesis over other ones that have been described in the past? So. The, um, the modified Lemaire, I mean, the, there's, there are a, a, quite a large number of extraarticular tenodesis procedures that have been described over the years um, and have been used uh, for decades. Um, the modified Lemaire, the, well, the, the Lemaire procedure was a strip of IT band that was uh, harvested um, as part approximately just over a centimeter wide and about 10 centimeters long. And it was, it was basically passed deep to the lateral collateral ligament and then passed through a bone tunnel just behind the SCL origin and then passed back underneath the SCL and reattached to itself. Um, we modified it just purely because we didn't, didn't feel it was necessary to put it through a bone tunnel. And so just attached it to the lateral flare of the uh, femoral condyle, uh, just posterior and proximal to the origin of the fibular collateral ligament. And, you know, you could also call it a modified Macintosh. It's essentially, uh, you know, it's an IT band. It's a, it's a strip of the posterior half of the IT band. And important, I think the important thing is that it's passed deep to the fibular collateral ligament, um, and then it's it's fixated at somewhere between 60 to 70 degrees of flexion with, with neutral tibial rotation with very little tension applied to the graft. So biomechanical studies have shown that if you do less than 20 newtons of tension applied to the graft, then you're not going to over-constrain uh, the joint in, in external rotation. Uh, and you really get that, that the tenodesis effect occurs when you come into extensions so it's up between that zero and 30 degrees of flexion where you're controlling the anterolateral subluxation um i mean we i chose the or as they say the group chose the lateral the lemaire procedure primarily because i actually visited david de jure back in uh 2012 before i moved out to canada and um i'd never seen a, a tenodesis before and um 
David showed me his technique and he was using the modified Lemaire at that time. He was using a, an interference screw to fix the graft, uh, whereas we used a staple. Uh, the reason for using the staple in, in our study uh, was uh, that it's very simple, it's cheap, it's an easy thing to translate into a number of different healthcare um, uh, practices. So it wasn't going to be a major ask when trying to translate the results of the study if, if it was found to be efficacious. Well, that was a great overview. What um, what role does functional testing uh, play in your day-to-day practice? Are you doing these functional tests that, that you all describe in the paper that you looked at in the paper uh, on everybody prior to returning them to sport? Yeah, I mean, primarily we're using, I would say first and foremost, our functional testing is occurring in more of our research studies. Um, and you know, where what we find with this particular paper, and I guess I didn't really go into that, what you know, was the was the functional testing there were no there was no real difference in the two different groups of patients. So whether you had an ACL reconstruction or an ACL with a lateral kinesis, there were very there were, there was no difference in limb symmetry indexes measured on our hop tests, which so are four standard hop tests. There were no a clinically significant difference in, in isokinetic strength. There was a small uh, statistical difference in uh, quadriceps strength at three and six months uh, in terms of peak torque and hamstring quad ratios, but that washed out by 12 and 24 months. We didn't think the difference was that clinically relevant, but when you actually when we looked at the, our pain questionnaires and our lower extremity functional scores, they also were a little lower, although wouldn't have really hit that mean clinically important difference. But there was a trend that we're seeing in the early functional or the early recovery phase. The uh, patients were maybe taking a little bit longer to recover in those first three months. And that would maybe go hand in hand with the fact that you're doing an extra procedure. And that extra procedure is on the lateral side of the knee and, uh, you know, putting graft underneath the quadriceps. So um, that, you know, I think that all goes hand in hand with that. Important. So, I mean, from the point of view of the study, we didn't see significant differences in functional outcomes, whether you, you whether you did a lateral team thesis or not. What's probably more interesting is that we didn't find that that the the results of the functional testing were actually predictive of failure. And we're just in the process of doing a, um, a multivariate analysis, looking at, at trying to work out what patients uh, whether we could actually determine who would be at higher risk of failure than others, and. Our functional testing in terms of the absolute numbers, or at least sorry, the limb, limb symmetry index, are not that predictive of failure. And it could be related to the fact that we're using limb symmetry index because there's ultimately probably some defunctioning of the contralateral side, which has been shown in multiple studies before. So, you know, that then makes you think, well, what 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 benefit is or are these battery of functional tests to our everyday clinical practice? And you know, I you know, I think that's still somewhat controversial. And there have been obviously some studies that have shown that the that if you do a battery of tests, it may be somewhat more predictive of of outcome. I think where we're where we use functional tests on a on a more of a daily basis in our, our clinical practice is to try and slow our athletes down. We know that um you know that, that you know Tim Hewitt's work shown if you if you if you prolong the length of rehabilitation and keep them out of contact, you keep them out of at-risk sports, so to speak, then your uh, risk of failure reduces. And certainly we see in our failure rates and stability that most of the f- failures are happening early. Um, and so 
I think the longer you can keep them out of that at-risk activity, then the better. And so I'll often use our functional testing at, at athletes who are trying to get back maybe sooner than I want them to. Um, and we'll use it as, as a method to show them where they are. So I'll often do it at nine months and they'll see where, you know, that their limb symmetry index is reduced um, and that they are, are, it'll really show them that they're not ready. Uh, and I think sometimes athletes need that and equally gives them a bit of a spur on to be able to start working further on the rehab, focusing on specific aspects of the rehab, retest again at the 12 month mark, or, you know, again, testing 12 months and then retesting, at, you know, at 15 months uh, and seeing the difference and, and, and just trying to get them in a better position before they go back to play. Because obviously it doesn't stop them from having a re-injury. All we're really trying to do is mitigate risk. So how successful have you been at, at telling a soccer player that at, at 12 months he's not ready to go back? <laughs> I mean, it's always a challenging, challenging one. I mean, I'm I'm very successful at telling them. It's whether or not they're compliant <laughs> and listen to what I have to say. And, um, you know, and, and ultimately, that you know, it depends on the athlete that you're working with. You know, if you're working in in a in in a in a college and you have the ability to sign people back in and in or out, then you've got a little bit more control. But you know, I'd say in 90% of my patient population, I don't have control of when of of whether they go back or not. So it's, they have to listen to my advice and then they choose whether they listen to my advice. And you know, I'm pretty pragmatic about it. I give them the I give them the information and if they seem a bit skeptical, we put them through the functional testing. And I would say the majority when they go through the functional testing, they they understand the issues that they're having. They know that they don't feel right. Um, the kinesiologist is very good. They're hearing it. They're not just hearing it from me. They're hearing it primarily from the kinesiologist and the physiotherapist. And they can look at numbers, but they can also understand that they're maybe landing, with, you know, with a, with a, a stiff leg. You know, a stiff leg. Um, they've got they're off balance. They've got a lot of lateral trunk lean, and they can see that. They do that in front of a mirror, and they can they can really see that. So I think that sort of that's well, it's maybe not positive feedback, but you know that so that feedback that they get from those tests, they will often take that on board, and then they really want to come back in three months later and show me that actually now they've improved and they're working hard. So, you know, it's just something else that you can add to your armamentarium to try and mitigate risk of re-injury in these young people. I like it. Well, so I'll I'll ask you this question. We'll wrap things up. So, based upon the results of your work. What are what are your current indications for the lateral articular tenodesis in the setting of a primary ACL reconstruction? So, um, prim- primarily, it's, it's probably changed my graft choice as a first off in the younger patient going back to contact pivoting sports. So, where I was doing a lot more hamstring uh, tendon autographs when I first started my practice, I've, I've switched over to doing an awful lot more patella tendon and in some instances quadriceps tendon um, in the in the younger patient going back to contact pivoting sport. Even in those patients though where I'm seeing patients with increased tibial slope, um, uh, high grade rotatory laxity, particularly chronic ACL injuries, um, then uh, and generalized ligamentous laxity, that's where I'll add in the lateral tenodesis. Um, I do a lateral tenodesis in in 95% plus of my uh, revision ACLs 
and not unless there's there's clearly another issue going on that needs to be addressed, such as a postlateral corner. It's pretty rare for me to do both lateral tenodesis plus postlateral corner if you're kind of fighting against yourself. Um, but um, so that that would be my main indications. You know, I think I think the question that we always get asked is, you know, well, you know, the reason that you your study is because of the, the hamstring graft. And uh, you know, I think maybe that's a little bit unfair. And I think one thing is important to, to recognize is that you can still get a great result of an ACL reconstruction with a hamstring tendon autograft. I think you just need to be a little bit more selective of who you use it on. And, you know, I think for your 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 average athlete, 25 plus, you know, a hamstring graft is still a great option. But when you're getting into the more high demand and, you know, the Moon study, Moon Group have shown this, the high demand athlete, then maybe a BTB might be a better option in, in those select patients. Um, and so I, I certainly don't think we need to, to you know, to throw out the, the, the hamstring graft at all. And, and then it comes down to, well, can you get the same results with uh, the BTB and not have to do a lateral tenodesis? And we really don't know the answer to that question. And we're just about to start a new study uh, along with University of Pittsburgh's uh, our co-investigators with a, it's another multi-center study we're calling Stability 2, which is both uh, NIH as well as uh, CIHR funded. Uh, and that'll be looking at patella tendon versus quadriceps tendon with or without a lateral tenodesis. Uh, and I still think there's going to be, in my, my my hypothesis would be that there's still going to be a certain patient uh, selection whereby the addition of a lateral tenodesis, no matter what graft you use, will be of benefit. Um, it remains to be seen whether or not the addition of a lateral tenodesis to a hamstring graft, which really only gives us a 4% failure rate, whether we can make that any better. And so then there'll be a lot of other functional indices and, and uh, uh, donor side issues that we can then start looking at as to what is going to be the optimum um, technique and, and uh, graft choice for these individuals. And, and you mentioned it when you were describing the technique itself, and you talked specifically about the importance of of taking a number of steps to avoid over constraining, making sure the tibial the tibia is held in neutral rotation, that you're not putting undue tension on the graft. And, you know, I think one one of the one of the really important things that I think is is coming out of of your work is that um, even though patients may have some issues in the you know immediate post operative period up until about three months, they may have some more pain. It seems like there doesn't really seem to be a downside at two years to doing the tetodesis. Is that a fair characterization? I think we're certainly not seeing a downside at two years, uh, and that's you know we're we what you know we we there's always going to be a concern that people will always bring up about the risk of osteoarthritis later down the the, the track, and of course we can't answer that question at this point in time. What we can do is we can look at historic literature. Uh, where tenodesis has been used for decades, and the majority of systematic reviews um, of on this particular subject have shown that there isn't an increased risk of, of post-traumatic OA with the addition of a lateral tenodesis, and that the, that um, meniscus deficiency seems to be driving that more than the addition of a lateral tenodesis. And the biomechanical studies as well, albeit show that there's a small degree of over-constraint when doing uh, the majority of anterolateral procedures, uh, it's probably not clinically relevant. So, you know, I don't want to, at any stage, say that you know there's there's definitely not going to be any downsides down the down the track. Uh, we know what we know based on the data that we've collected so far, but we're also pretty comforted by the fact that we've got a lot of other historic literature to go by. 
Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot, I think there's an awful lot more information to get out of this. I don't think every single patient needs to have a lateral tenodesis. I think that's for sure. And I think, we, you know, it's, it's important that we, that we get to a point where we can be a little bit more selective, uh, whether that's being selective on graft choice, being selective on adding lateral tenodesis, depending on patients presenting characteristics, depending on their, their choice of sport. I'd hope we'd get to that point. And I think as, as time goes on, I think we, we, as surgeons, we probably need to get away from being a, a BTB surgeon or a hamstring tendon surgeon is that actually we need to be more uh, selective of, of what we do and uh, trying to be a little bit more selective of, of on those particular patients to try and optimize our outcomes. Well, tremendous talk today, Dr. Getgood. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy, busy schedule. Um, Dr. Getgood's paper entitled, No Difference in Functional Outcomes When Lateral Extraarticular Tenodesis is Added to ACL Reconstruction in Young Patients, the Stability Study, was recently published online as an article in press and can currently be accessed at www.arthroscopyjournal.org. Thank you all for joining us and have a good evening.